Christchurch, New Malden. Sunday the 5th of December 2021, 9.30 service. Stephen Kurtz speaking on how they looked forward to Jesus, Moses. Okay, well I wonder how good you are at those spot the difference exercises. You know the ones I mean, where you get a couple of pictures and the pictures are for the most part the same, but they contain a number of differences. Nathan tends to use them quite a lot with our children's groups. They're very popular. And here is an example. Okay, now you've got a few seconds to try and spot the differences in those pictures. Okay, let's see how many you're going to get. Okay, I hope you're working hard. I hope you're playing this at home. Right, I wonder how many you've got. Okay, put up your hand if you think you've got four. Five? Six? Wow, seven? There's no way of checking this, of course. Okay, but let's see the answers. Okay, there they are. So how many of you got all of them? Well, most of them, perhaps a few of you did. Well, I'm impressed. But sometimes we have to do this task in real life. So at the school that I taught at, we tended to have at any one time about two or three sets of identical twins. It wasn't a huge school at all, but we tended to have uh, two or three sets of identical twins at any one time. And even before I had my own twins who weren't identical, one of the tasks that I really set myself as a teacher was to try and spot the differences between them so that I could be confident about telling which twin was which. And I saw it as a sort of matter of personal pride that I was able to do this. So they're a collection of identical twins. And of course, the people who really know them, their parents, probably would tell them apart quite easily, even if to the rest of us, it's more difficult. But what's even more fascinating, really, when it comes to families, is playing spot the similarities. Sometimes the similarities in families between fathers and sons, sons and daughters, and, uh, whatever, are obvious, and sometimes we appreciate them a bit more gradually. So for instance, sometimes it's when we see a photograph of someone at the same age of someone else, say we see a picture of a father when they were their son's age, and we see the amazing similarities between them. That picture there is of a father and son. Those pictures are taken 25 years apart, and it's striking how similar they are, even down to the style of shirt, isn't it? <clears throat> now, every human being is, of course, unique. But, but particularly where families are concerned, there can also be some uncanny similarities alongside the differences. And what we're doing during this Advent is a sort of combination of spot the similarity and spot the difference. We're looking for the most part at Old Testament characters who pointed ahead to Jesus. Last week, as I said earlier, we looked at the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Next week, we're looking at David with David. And this week, we're looking at the figure of Moses. And the family illustration is very relevant because all of these people were part of the one family of God. The patriarchs were so called because they were the fathers of the people of Israel. And Moses, David, and ultimately Jesus were all part of that family. And learning to read the Bible as a Christian is essentially learning to read it with Jesus as its goal. 
And this involves us learning to spot the similarities and the differences to Jesus of those people who came before. So who was Moses? Well, let's have a picture up of Moses. He was the leader of Israel during the really crucial moment of their history when that people of Israel were rescued by God from slavery in Egypt. That's the story that I spoke about a few weeks ago when I spoke about Holy Communion and the similarities to the Passover. Now, God, according to that story, rescued the people of Israel by leading them through the Red Sea. Once he'd done that, he led them to Mount Sinai, God's holy mountain, where Moses received the law, which was how God wanted his people to live. But while God, uh, Moses was up the mountain, the people turned away from God, and they worshipped an idol which they'd made, bringing God's judgment upon them. But thanks to Moses pleading to God on their behalf, the Israelites were forgiven and were given sacrifices which they had to sort of constantly make to deal with their sin. Now, because of that sin, because of the evil within them, the Israelites couldn't progress straight to the land that God had promised them. They had to wander instead in the desert for 40 years. But God was nonetheless with them. And after 40 years, the people, but not Moses, were able to enter again through water the promised land. Now, it's a good story. It's a great one for our children to colour in and learn about in their groups. But what's it got to do with Jesus? Well, the New Testament writers, they would say absolutely everything it's got to do with Jesus. And the way in which they illustrate that is by deliberately telling their story of Jesus to have echoes of this story of Moses. Now, Matthew's Gospel, the first of the four Gospels, particularly does that. But actually, all of the New Testament tells the story of Jesus in ways that deliberately echo this story of Moses so that we can understand Jesus better. But as I say, Matthew's Gospel particularly does it. So, for instance, after Jesus is born, wicked King Herod... He tries to kill Jesus by massacring all the children under two in Bethlehem. Sounds familiar? Yes, says Matthew. It's very familiar because something very similar happened when Moses was born. And a deeply threatened pharaoh of Egypt also tried to kill all the Israelite baby boys that were threatening his power. Now, to get away, back to the Christmas story from the dangers of Herod, Mary, Joseph and baby Jesus, they escaped into Egypt, didn't they? And they were then led out of Egypt again after Herod had died. Sounds familiar? Yes, says Matthew, because something very similar happened way back in the Bible story, when having taken the people of Israel to Egypt under the very first Joseph, the one with the coat of many colours, God then led them out of Egypt again through Moses. Later on in the Gospel story, when Jesus is beginning his work, he's plunged underwater, isn't he, by John in the River Jordan. And he's then declared to be God's son. Sounds familiar? Yes, says Matthew, because something very similar happened when the people of Israel were led out of slavery and declared to be God's son, that was a title that was originally used of Israel, by being brought through the waters of the Red Sea. Still later on in the Gospel story, Jesus calls 12 followers and he goes up a mountain and gives them God's instructions about how they're to live, what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. 
Sounds familiar? Yes, says Matthew, because something very similar happened when the 12 tribes of Israel were at Mount Sinai, where Moses went up a mountain to receive God's law. Matthew, in other words, and this goes for actually all of the New Testament writers, wants us to play spot the similarity between Jesus and the Old Testament stories, including and particularly that of Moses. And he wants us to do this because he knows that in the process of playing that spot the similarity, we'll understand Jesus better. We'll appreciate what he was doing much more by seeing what prefigured it. But he doesn't just want us to play spot the similarity. When these stories deliberately echo one another, what the New Testament writers, including Matthew, want us to do is to play spot the difference as well. So when we play this double game, when we play spot the similarity and spot the difference with these Old Testament stories, what do we find? Well, with relevance to Jesus and Moses, I'm going to suggest three things. First, the whole area of Moses and Jesus as the means of God's rescue. What does spot the similarity and spot the difference show us when we play it within this theme? Well, spot the similarity shows us that just as Moses was the means of God rescuing the Israelites from the evil of slavery and setting them free, so Jesus is the means of God rescuing us from the power of evil and setting us free from the oppression of that evil. Now that's spot the similarity. What about spot the difference? Well, spot the difference shows us that the rescue that Jesus brought was much deeper than the rescue brought by Moses. And that's because rather than evil simply being identified with particularly wicked people like Pharaoh, if we're honest, evil runs through every single one of us. As human beings, we're capable of doing the most amazing things. But we also know, as I say, if we're honest, that we're capable of doing the most terrible things as well. And that's why it won't just do for us to be rescued from others. It won't just do for us to be rescued from baddies like the pharaohs or indeed the herods of this world. Jesus does come to bring that rescue, and we mustn't forget that. He's more than Moses, but he certainly isn't less. But Jesus primarily comes to rescue us from evil, the biggest problem of all, the power of sin and evil over our lives. He comes to deal with that root problem of evil, which is at the source of all of the other problems in the world. And this shows in another spot the similarity and spot the difference. You might remember when we looked at Holy Communion, if you hear a few weeks ago, I mentioned Moses commanding the Israelites before he took them out of Egypt to put the blood of a lamb on their doorposts. Why? So the angel of death would pass over their houses, enabling them to escape from Egypt. And spot the similarity at this point shows us why Jesus is described in John's Gospel as the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Because Jesus' death on the cross, precisely like that blood of the lamb on the doorposts, is what protects us from judgment, protects us ultimately from death as well, certainly in a permanent sense. That spot, the similarity, but spot the difference here, 
shows us that because Jesus' death was the perfect sacrifice, no further sacrifices were needed. As I said earlier, because the Israelites kept on sinning, God, through Moses, had to give them all of those animal sacrifices, which had to be constantly repeated. They were constantly going on in the temple in Jerusalem once it was built, and before that in the tabernacle. But the New Testament makes it really clear, particularly in the letter to the Hebrews, that the sacrifice of Jesus was once and for all. It did the entire job. There was no need to offer any more sacrifices because sin and its power had been dealt with once and for all. It had been totally defeated by Jesus' death. And that is wonderfully reassuring. If we still had a system where we had to offer sacrifices regularly, we would be unsure about our position before God. But we, if we've turned to Jesus, are permanently forgiven, permanently rescued, permanently restored by God. What happened under Moses had a sort of temporary quality. What happens under Jesus is so much more. When we accept Jesus, when we ask his forgiveness, when we ask him to be the Lord of our life, that sacrifice lasts forever. It doesn't have to be repeated. And we appreciate that so much more when we understand the story of Moses and in this instance understand its difference to the story of Jesus. But there are other areas as well. What about Moses and Jesus as teachers of how God wants us to live. Spot the similarity, as I said earlier, is reinforced by Moses giving the law and Jesus giving his teaching on a mountain. That's deliberate. We're meant to make the connection. And both were showing how God wants us to live. That's why Jesus said, I don't come to abolish the law, but to fulfil it. But what are the differences? How does spot the difference come in? Well, spot the difference comes in when we notice how Jesus came to fulfill that law. The problem with the law of Moses was that it didn't bring people the power to obey that law. And that meant that good while it was, the law of Moses simply brought death, it brought condemnation. Because it brought people God's standards, but it didn't bring them the power to fulfill those standards. That was in that passage that we uh, heard earlier from Pete where he read that bit from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, the third chapter. It talks about the law bringing condemnation. But because Jesus defeated the power of evil when he died, that meant that God's spirit could come. And because God's spirit had come, that meant that spirit could change people's hearts. It finally enabled God's law to be fulfilled within his people, supremely by acts of love. Acts of love that weren't possible before God's Spirit came in this dramatically new way and changed people's hearts. And the New Testament is quite clear that love is the fulfilling of the law. So all those complex laws in the Old Testament, what they basically were fulfilled by were people living lives of love towards others. And when we live in that way, we're fulfilling that law that Moses gave, but without the power to obey it. And that's completed by us being given God's Holy Spirit to enable us to fulfill God's commands. And that links to a final theme. 
a final theme within which we can play is spot the similarity and spot the difference. And this is in regard to Moses and Jesus as intercessors, I'll explain what that means, and channels of God's presence. An intercessor is someone who pleads on someone else's behalf. And both Moses and Jesus in the Bible stories do this on behalf of God's people. And that's because they had a special access to God's presence. That's the spot the similarity part. And it's important to understand, for us to help us understand, that just as Moses prayed for God's forgiveness to come on the Israelites, so Jesus, the risen Jesus, prays or intercedes for us all the time on our behalf. And that's a really amazing thought, isn't it? Jesus, God's own son, praying for our forgiveness constantly praying for our acceptance before his Father, going into bat for us, as it were, on our behalf. That's spot the similarity. What about spot the difference? Spot the difference is crucial here, and it was reflected within that passage from 2 Corinthians. You see, with Moses, the presence of God was limited, and it was temporary. Moses alone, we're told, was able to meet with God by entering this special tent of meeting. And Moses, we're told, had to wear a veil afterwards to protect the Israelites from the glory of God shining out from his face. But even under that veil, the glory of God, we're told, was gradually fading away. It was transitory. It wasn't there in a permanent sense. And it's telling that even Moses himself, because of his sinfulness, was never, never able to enter the promised land. But Jesus, on the other hand, brought the full and permanent presence of God. Because after Jesus entered into heaven, he was able, because of his perfection, to enter into God's inheritance. The coming of the Holy Spirit means that in the final words of that passage we had read, it says this, We who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with an ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You see, the biggest and most amazing spot the similarity in the entire Bible story is actually between us and God. Spot the difference is perhaps the most obvious thing to say about us and God. Because through the Bible, there's so much about the sin of human beings and the terrible effects of this. Things that we see only too obviously in the world about us. But before sin entered the world, human beings were made in God's likeness, weren't we? We were made in his image. And it's that family likeness that God was resolved to restore Taking steps towards it in the earlier parts of the Bible story through people like Moses, but ultimately bringing it about through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit, who put God's law into our hearts. Engaging with the story of Moses helps us to understand this a bit better, because it shows us the working that took place ahead of Jesus' coming. So does the story of the patriarchs and David. When I was uh, at school, you didn't just have to get the right answer in maths. I don't know whether this is the same now. We've got any maths teachers? Yeah, we've got Helen. Yeah, yeah. Oh, another maths teacher. I didn't realise. Um, yep. And 
we didn't just have to get the right answer, we had to show the working to demonstrate that we understood the answer. It was annoying because it was difficult enough for me to get a, an answer right in maths, let alone to show the working how I'd got there. It was normally some sort of fluke or I'd peered over someone else's shoulder and got their answer. And that won't do, really, really. If you want to uh, see that someone has really understood the answer, they've got to show the working. And really, the earlier parts of the Old Testament are a bit like that. They help us to see the working. They help us to see that the answer isn't just Jesus. They help us to see a little bit more of why Jesus is the answer, why Jesus makes sense, what the coming of Jesus is based upon. The patriarchs and Moses, and as we'll see next week, David, are all part of the working. The workings of the God who wanted to restore the family likeness within his people. The people that he made, the people that he came to fully and finally restore through his son, Jesus Christ. And why did he do that? Well, it was so that with unveiled faces, we would reflect the glory of God. We'd reflect the glory of God in our lives and the way that we lead them. We'd be able to reflect that glory with unveiled faces so that God's glory can shine out from this church and shine out from our lives and can be a witness to his love and his desire to reconcile a world to him. We're going to pray. Oh, look, they've escaped back in. Okay.